0: Now I'd like to give you all a very warm welcome. It's nice to see the hall so well filled. This is the last of our Saturday Night Bible teachings for this season and we've been blessed over the winter to have so many good speakers and we're very blessed this evening to have Alistair Sinclair with us for the last of our sessions. Next month obviously, uh, on Saturday the 9th of March, we will have our annual conference over in Victoria Hall in Torrey and the speakers expected are Stephen Grant and Douglas Mowat, and Stephen Grant will continue on the Sunday through to the Wednesday in Bible teaching at, just check my thing, uh, 6.20 on the 10th and 7.45 on the 11th to the 13th. Now I'll just open with a word of prayer. Father we just come before you, we give thanks that we can gather together, we give thanks that we can open your word and that we have your word and we can study it. Father, we just give thanks that you speak to us through your word and we ask for a blessing this evening as Alistair would open your word and bring your message to us, that we might take it to our hearts, that we might learn from it and we might put it into practice. We ask all of this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Now just some other intimations as well. On the Saturday, the 23rd of February, and there are some cards at the door if you want to pick them up as you leave, we have a session with Gareth Edwards from Perth called Ambassadors for Christ. And it's an informal, interactive workshop on how to preach the gospel to people and how to reach out and witness to people. And it starts at 2.30 and there's a session 2.30 to 3.30 then at 3.45 to 4.45 and then there's a meal between 4.45 and 5.45 and then a third session between 5.45 and 6.30. So please avail yourself <coughs> of some cards on the way out. And also we have... a. Uh, our gospel service in Duffy Park on the 17th of February at 3 o'clock. So you'd be very welcome to come and join us for that. And the speaker expected will be Fraser Bowie. Now just before I hand over to Alistair, we'll stand and sing another hymn. And it's number 522. 522 in the book. All the way my Saviour leads me. What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, Here by faith in him to dwell. For I know whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. We'll stand and sing after an introduction, the whole of 522. Amen.
1: To be here again at Holborn Good to see everybody is here And we do trust that God will bless us tonight As we look at his word Uh, We're going to turn to a very very familiar passage of scripture The letter to the Hebrews And the opening verses Hebrews and chapter 1 Hebrews chapter 1 And we'll start with verse 1 God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they for unto which of the angels said he at any time thou art my son this day have I begotten thee and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in, and maybe this would read better, and when he bringeth in again the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is for ever and ever a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity therefore God even thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows and thou Lord in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of thine hands they shall perish but thou remainest And they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shall thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Now we'll stop the reading there, that's as far as we need to go in the passage, and we do trust that God blesses the reading of his word. The letter to the Hebrews is really quite unique in our New Testament. It's unique on two grounds. It's unique on the grounds of who it was written to. You go through your New Testament letters and you will discover that they are either written to a a company of Christians, an assembly, a local church, or they are written to a group of local churches, or they are written to the believers in a location, or they are written to individuals. But this letter alone is basically written to a race, the Hebrews. It's a name that was first used, of course, of Abraham. And when God brought that man out from Ur of the Chaldees, he separated somebody to himself. He began a period of time in his dealings with men when he started, rather than to deal with all the nations, but simply to deal with one nation. For roughly 2,000 years up to Abraham from Adam, God had dealt with the nations. When he took this man out, he started to deal with one nation, one race, the Hebrews. And through Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and the God is often referred to as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, that race was established. And for another 2,000 years, he dealt with them. At the end of that period, his son, the Lord Jesus, came into this world, and that very nation took him and crucified him. And from that day till this, which is about a period of another 2,000 years, God has dealt with the church. And it is quite remarkable that a God who is a God of Sabbaths has now dealt with this world as a whole for six millennium, And I can't help but believe that we must be standing on the brink of a Sabbath of rest. After two millennium when he dealt with the nations and two millennium with these Hebrews and two millennium of the church, maybe we stand on the brink of what the world needs. In fact our passage today says it's going to wax old as doth a garments. And we look at that from a biblical point of view. And you look at that from the point of view of global warming and all the rest of it. And of course even Steve, Stephen Hawking who died uh, just last year said that he believes this planet has less than a hundred years of life left in it. That's a remarkable thing for even a man who is atheistic in his outlook to come to the conclusion. And so when we come to this book what happens is when God started to deal with the church a number of these Jews got converted. And about 30 or 40 years have passed probably since most of them were being converted. And when they got converted, they were expecting that everything to do with the old system would disappear and that what they had become as Christians would grow and flourish and perhaps would, would get to the same sort of heights as they saw it That that only God-given religion the world had ever seen had reached. That religion of Judaism. And it had reached even heights in that day, at least in the eyes of men. In that they had this magnificent temple that Herod had built for them. And 46 years in the building. And now, 40 odd years after they've got converted, you know what? That temple is still continuing and the sacrifices are still taking place and the high priest still going in and a great day of atonement still taking place every year and they may be starting to think because what's happened to the Christians is very much like the day and age in which you and I live in they have become marginalised they have become well I would say today people say that they live in a post-Christian society I think it's fair to say our Bible teaches us that this is an anti-Christian society And our country now unfortunately Would have to be described in such a sad way And for these people They have now become the off scouting And they're they're meeting uh, in secret in many cases And the circumstances And and some of them are looking on And they're really starting to ask this question Have we made a mistake? Have we left something which seems to be continuing Now they're only a few years away from AD 70 Maybe only 3 or 4 years probably And they didn't realise of course That that temple and everything associated with it Was about to be completely destroyed As the Lord Jesus had said And it would be removed That there wouldn't be one stone left upon another When the Roman hordes under Titus Invaded Jerusalem And set it alight The melting of the gold etc From the temple went into the seams Between the stones And they literally removed every stone from another So they could retrieve the molten gold And the prophecy of the Lord Jesus was fulfilled in such detail. And so the writer picks up this book and he writes to them to really tell them that everything that they've left has been superseded. And it's a little bit like Paul when he wrote to the Philippians. We are saying once uh, over at, uh, at Woodside, but it's not just Woodside. Aberdeen as a whole, you seem to have a huge number of accountants in the assemblies in Aberdeen and uh, you know if you go through uh, Paul's letters you'll see very often that Paul is sometimes he he, he paints himself as a soldier and sometimes he he paints himself as an athlete and sometimes as a farmer and sometimes as a builder and I think in the book of Philippians he's an accountant and if you look through the book of Philippians you'll see he's reckoning and he's counting and the big thing that he does is he gets a balance sheet out in Philippians (coughs) And on one side of the balance sheet he puts everything that he ever had. His status, in fact the fact that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews and everything that it meant. And on the other side of the balance sheet he only puts one thing, the Lord Jesus. And this is what he says, he says when I put him there I count everything over here but rubbish. And in a sense, I think that's exactly what the Hebrew writer does. Now, I'm not suggesting, because this is the second unique thing about this book, that Paul wrote the book of the Hebrews. You have to remember, the 13 letters before this begin with the word Paul. And this book begins with the word God. And as we're going to see in a moment, we should probably leave it there. There may be some indications that cause many of us to think there's a fair chance he had a lot to do with it. But I think we need to uh, say this. It is the New Testament book where the author is not identified. And I suppose Luke might be hoping that it's not Paul. Because if it's not Paul, then Luke wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else. But if it is Paul, then Paul wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else. You can work that out for yourself afterwards by looking at how big Luke's Gospel and the Acts of the Apostles are. So when you come to this book, he's going to be completely taken up with this person. And uh, this book is going to do a remarkable thing. Which uh, very few writers outside the Gospels do. You'll discover in the Gospels, in the narrative, the Lord Jesus Christ is constantly referred to as Jesus. He's never referred to by, uh, in that way by any of the disciples ever, And even by his brothers, two of whom wrote in the New Testament, James, look through the whole of James, never ever referred to in that way by James either. And yet, when we come to this book of the Hebrews, the writer on eight occasions, now, if you've got an authorised version, you might think there's nine, but one of the occasions really is Joshua, rendered here Jesus, it's the same name of course, between the Old and the New Testament, Um, one by whom Jehovah saves. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people. And eight times, though, you'll simply read in this book of Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. In fact, there's only 13 times that the name's used at all, and five of them, uh, it's combined with something else. Three times, uh, once Jesus Christ, three times Christ Jesus, and one time the Lord Jesus. But on eight occasions, just the simple name Jesus. The name of the man. So you'll discover from chapter 2 all the way through to chapter 13. This repeats itself. It speaks about Jesus passed through the heavens. Looking unto Jesus the author and finisher. Going out to Jesus outside the camp. And you'll see repeatedly. And the reason for that is he's emphasizing to these writers. uh, There's a kind of strange, uh, almost a contradiction in this book. Everything they had before was physical and literal and appealed to the human senses. They had uh, incense they could smell they had a priest they could see with little bells that they could hear on certain occasions. Not when he was in the most holy place, of course, because he didn't have that on then. And, and they had uh, a sacrifice and an altar that they could see. And real sacrifices, literal animal sacrifices that took place. Now, it's all gone when you come to the New Testament as far as these symbolic things are concerned the only physical symbolic things in the New Testament are the water in which we are baptized the loaf and the cup which we take to remember the Lord Jesus and the coverings that the sisters wear upon their heads when there is communication between heaven and earth when there is praying or prophesying going on that is it you might have an argument to suggest that in a sense marriage is a physical symbol of a spiritual truth as well but it's not a church truth and these are the only physical things in the New Testament it's all gone now you would look at that humanly speaking you say they've gone from the tangible to the intangible they've gone from that which is substantial to that which is ethereal But in fact, the writer to the Hebrews is writing to say it's exactly the opposite. Everything they had before was just a picture. Mm. And now they've got the real thing. Mm. Everything they had before and all of these physical things. That is why elsewhere Paul can say, to go back to that sort of thing. Is to go to the weak and beggarly elements. It is a sad thing today when Christians want to go back to that which is material and that which appeals to the senses and that which appeals to to what is physical because what this book of the Hebrews teaches really is all of that belongs to an old economy and now what they have and what we have is a person it's very important for us to understand that you get a grip in terms of assembly fellowship That the vital thing is this we gather to a person not a creed not a, a list not a, a, a list of doctrines we can pin on the back of a hall we gather to a person that's not to say the doctrines of scripture are not important they're vitally important but it's the person that is at the centre of everything and so this writer writes and as we're going to see tonight he, he really deals very much with the person of the Lord Jesus if you look at the opening six chapters they're all about his person when you come to chapter 7 You've just been told at the end of chapter six that the Lord Jesus has been made an high priest, and so from chapter seven to chapter ten, verse eighteen, the writer now deals with the priesthood of the Lord Jesus. It's very pertinent to these people. It's very pertinent to you and I. This is one of the great. This is the greatest age that has ever been to be a child of God. There are numerous reasons for that. One is we're indwelt by the Spirit of God. One is we have the complete Word of God in our hands. And another is that we have a great high priest in heaven who represents us, who has walked this earth and lived as we've lived. And he's been tested in everything like as we are and in all things apart from sin he's been made like unto his brethren and he completely understands us. Because he not only was, but he is a real man. I think it's uh, beautiful, you know, that when uh, Paul is recounting, I, better pour, I was about to just pick it up, it wouldn't look very good, would it? But, uh, I'll, I'll pour it out. Is it probably, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't have wanted it photographed and then put in the Believer's Magazine. I it is interesting, isn't it, when Paul is recounting his conversion to Agrippa in Acts 26. And he gives a little bit more detail than you would have got at the original account. And he asks the question, who art thou? And the Lord Jesus gives this reply. Jesus of Nazareth. You know, he'd been back in the glory for decades. And he still refers to himself as Jesus of Nazareth. It's a wonderful thing for the believer, isn't it? To know that we've got one who sympathises. And as you go through that middle section, he'll point out that he's a far, 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 greater high priest than Aaron ever was and and Aaron of course was the first and the foremost of them because there's no degeneration he doesn't have to offer for his own sins and then the sins of the people because he never had any and he'll show it's greater provision it's not the blood of bulls and goats it's his own precious blood and he'll show that it's permanent it doesn't have to be replaced and in fact the principle under which he's a high priest is greater because it's not after the law of a carnal commandment how did you become a priest before a high priest? by an accident of death right? not just an accident of birth but also an accident of death it was a carnal commandment, it was fleshly and you'll notice for example that uh, the first two sons of uh, of, 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 uh, of Aaron. We're not good men. You see, not only could it degenerate, but it could regenerate, and in both cases it failed. But now there's a high priest who lives in the power of an endless life. And of course, he's made a permanent provision. And it's a better place because the place they had then, uh, well, it was a tabernacle, at least in, in this book it's painted as the tabernacle, and then a temple. But now it's heaven itself. It's not just a figure, it's not a picture. It's right into the inner sanctuary of God. And so there's a superior priesthood. And then if you look at the end of the book, when we come to uh, what is in largely the practical section, the appeal to these people, uh, I think it's not so much the person of the Lord Jesus and the priesthood of the Lord Jesus but it's something to do with the presence of the Lord Jesus you can look at that for yourself but he he speaks about going uh, in the same way as he has entered in that we go into the holiest and he speaks about gathering together forsake not the assembling of yourselves together and he speaks about a great company uh, including an innumerable company of angels a festal gathering the spirits of just men made perfect and we who are described in this beautiful way the church of the firstborn ones who are enrolled in heaven Uh, what a wonderful description the church of the firstborn ones who are registered in heaven and of course you'll find the Lord Jesus in that as well and then at the end of the book you'll say going forth to him outside the camp so it's about his presence it's a little chapter, a big chapter chapter 11 which perhaps is about his people but let's come back to these opening six chapters. It's about his person. I'm going to suggest that it, it hangs around three expressions. You'll get one of them in chapter 2 verse 17. And it's the idea in these opening two chapters, he was made like unto his brethren. That's what the first two chapters are about. It's about the one who came from heaven to earth. But then chapter 3 and 4 I think is summed up in chapter 4 verse 14. It says he's passed into the heavens. He was made like unto his brethren. His deity came from heaven to earth and a man came in incarnation. But in chapters 3 and 4 the one who brought God to earth is the one who's taken manhood to heaven. And he's now passed through the heavens. And then as we've said chapters 5 and 6, chapter 6 verse 19. He's been made an high priest forever. But this opening one then is made like unto his brethren. And hence the use continually of the name Jesus, Jesus, Jesus throughout the book. And yet before he ever gets to that in chapter 2 we have this magnificent passage before us tonight. And in this magnificent passage it's one of these great chapter 1's of our Bible where the writer takes the person of the Lord Jesus and makes it very, very clear exactly who he is. Now we are beset today just as the latter end of the first century was by those who are round about us in various cults and whatever else and and this is what John says of them he says they went out from us because they were not of us. And they were basically, there is great falsehood regarding the person of the Lord Jesus. A few years ago, down at Lythermuir, we looked in this book and we looked at the manhood of the Lord Jesus. Well, I want in these opening verses of Hebrews 1 to realize, before we get to that, this Hebrew writer is going to establish that this Jesus of the book of the Hebrews is none other than God Himself. Now I have back at home in my book collection, well I'm not quite sure whether it is at home right now, it might be in a garage along with my dad's books because I've kind of got them all when we moved house and I haven't yet reorganised things. But somewhere I've got a thing called Lewis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. Very handy book if you want to test your brake lights because... You can lean it against your brake pedal and it's heavy enough to put the lights on while you run the back. Um, but it's a very handy book for many other things. Very, very good uh, reformed writer and very good, of course, as these men are on things like the basics of the person of the Lord Jesus. And when you come to his section on the deity of Christ, he points out something very beautiful that I think you can see in this chapter. There are four things that tell you when you're dealing with God and as we work down some of these verses, not all of them uh, we're going to see these four things revealed one of them he says is the titles that he's given and we're going to run down these opening ten verses at least and we're going to see the different ways in which the Lord Jesus is spoken to the different titles he's given I'm going to say something on that perhaps on the worth of the Lord Jesus And then Mr. Burkhoff says this, there are certain actions that only God can do. The people knew that when the Lord Jesus was here. They said to him when he would say to folks, thy sins be forgiven thee, they would correctly say, only God can forgive sins. And men have unfortunately put that to one side today in many places. But it's still very true. And then you'll find that that is, if you like, are, are the works that belong to deity. And we'll see them in this passage. And then there is, what are the very essences and attributes of God himself? I'm going to call that tonight just to give you a heading to, to keep up. My wife's not here so I can use alliteration. Not only the worth of the Lord Jesus and the works of the Lord Jesus, but the wonder of the Lord Jesus. Particularly that expression. The brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. And then before we uh, leave the passage, we just want to pick up that's why we read a bit further down uh, that little expression: "Let all the angels of God worship Him, because worship belongs to God alone and to nobody else." And that, of course, is one of the great proofs. So we just want to, to look at that in these verses, and maybe just encourage ourselves to have a right. Why are we going to see the wonderful intimacy? And we do have an intimacy. With the Lord Jesus. It is a remarkable thing. He has deigned to call his brethren. We are his friends. You know the, the saints at Woodside. I, I was there a few weeks ago. And they're, they're going through John's Gospel. And they're, they're in the upper room. And you know we, we're looking at some of those beautiful passages. And there he says now. he says, You know you don't tell your servants. But you do tell your friends. And he shared things with us out of his work. And it is a great thing to, yes. to feel that intimacy we have with the Lord Jesus. But we must never ever in this day of casualness and laxness on so many fronts in society as a whole. We must never lose sight of the wonder of who he is. The verses start off in that they're well known aren't they? But they seem a little bit difficult don't they? But just look at these titles. I want you to see that first of all. God, who at sundry times spake in time past, fathers by the prophets, these last days, now our authorized says, spoken unto us by his son. But if your Bible like mine, the little word his is in italics. That means that the translators have added it. You know, the, the translators did a great job for us, didn't they? I was in, in, the, in, in Brussels this week, and uh, I wasn't coming back until Thursday morning, and I decided to go out on uh, stay in a very seedy hotel it turned out I didn't know that in a place called Vilvoorde and the reason I went out to Vilvoorde uh, I wanted to go and see the museum in Vilvoorde because that's the place where the man more responsible than anybody for you and I having this book in our language you know what they did to him in Vilvoorde they chucked Tyndall out and they strangled him but they never killed him and they burnt him at the stake and they did it so that you and I can read our Bible and while there might be alterations and he largely more than anybody else is responsible for this authorised version the fact that he's not credited at the beginning is an absolute disgrace it's the biggest piece of plagiarism that ever took place and the man translated the whole of the New Testament more than 90% of what you have in front of you is his work and the whole of the Pentateuch as well and here though The little italics. His is not there. God has spoken to us in son. Now you will notice it is in the singular. When you come a little bit further down this passage. You will discover of the angels. They are sons in the plural. But he is the son in the singular. In a unique sense. The only begotten son and of course that is a great title we're also going through John's gospel we're not as as far on as the folks at at Woodside maybe in every sense but uh, we're only in chapter 8 at the moment and here's the remarkable thing though when you see them constantly look at chapter 5 look at chapter 7 what is the great accusation against the Lord Jesus he being a man maketh himself God why did he make himself God because he claimed to be the son of God The Jews knew. It's a pity the cults round about us don't know. That to be the son of God means to be God himself. You go back to the book of Proverbs and you'll see that very clearly in in the words of that great mystical king when he says, who can know him and his son? Who is he? He's remarkable. And so the first little title here is son. And of course what we discover is here God has spoken in different ways at different times. He spoke in creation, and that's in these verses, isn't it? He made the worlds. He spoke in incarnation. And that's, of course, what we've got here. And he also spoke in inspiration. I would judge they are the three ways that God has communicated with man. First of all, in creation. He has put unique things round about us. I just pondered the other night, working downwards, lying in bed, when I couldn't sleep from the universe down to the galaxy down to our own little solar system down to our own little earth with its moon da- and then just you work right through right down to all the things that constitute a human and look at the wonder of what God has done Amen. and that man in his blackness and his darkness try to explain it away when it is just so evidently radiating the proof of the creator even in its fallen state it's just radiating it out at us But God then spoke through these prophets at different times and in different ways. Some of them got visions. Some of them God literally spoke to face to face. And they recorded it in scripture. And you remember that now. What you have in front of you are the words of God himself. Not the words of these authors and not even the words of a Tyndale and not even the words of the 70 divines. They're the words of God. But he says, hath in these last days God has now spoken in the most direct way possible because it is totally direct. In Son, God Himself. Not through an intermediary, not partially, not in different ways, but completely and finally. That is why there is no further revelation. So whether it's Joseph Smith who goes out and claims to have seen an angel, or whether it's Muhammad who claims to have gone out and seen an angel, they're all false. Because this is God's final word. He's spoken in Son. Now look down a little bit further and see the, the, the titles as you come down. The angels, of course, are the sons of God. We'll not get into any controversy over that in the Old Testament. But at the very least, we'll all agree that in the book of Job, or Job, if you prefer, they're the sons of God. Whether they are in the early chapters of Genesis, well, I think they are as well, but you might not agree with that. But we'll all agree in the book of Job, they're called the sons of God but here's the Lord Jesus uniquely the Son but then look when we come down to verse 8 thy throne O God is forever and ever and that of course is one of the titles that's used uh, throughout our Old Testament but you know come a little bit further down move quickly for the sake of time look at verse 10 and thou Lord in the beginning Lord I want to stop a little minute for this because you see while we've pointed out that 13 times in this book you'll find the the name Jesus as a whole and 8 of them it's just Jesus on its own there's another name for the Lord Jesus that you'll find many more times you'll find it 17 times and that's the name Lord and you will find this name Lord if you look through your Bible 748 times in the New Testament you'll find in particular if you go into the Acts of the Apostles as the church is being established, as they speak of the Lord Jesus throughout the Acts of the Apostles, 113 times it's clear the name Lord. And I want to suggest to you, and we make a little appeal here without being critical and without being hard, I believe Lord is the name of the age and the dispensation in which we live. I also believe that it is the name that is above every other name I don't think it's a mystical name I think the passage in Philippians 2 tells you that he's been given a name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus not the name Jesus but the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that what? that Jesus Christ is Lord and that is the name and I would just suggest just appeal that that is really the best way in which you and I can address our saviour He is Lord. In the very beginning of that upper room ministry. As he is expounding to those disciples. About their intimacy. What does he say right at the outset? He says. You call me teacher and Lord. And you say well. For so I am. And we do need to remember that today. But you know the interesting thing is. If you run through these references in the book of the Hebrews. To his name of Lord. Well now they are very interesting. Because some of them are quoting from the Old Testament. And do you know what they're quoting from the Old Testament? They're quoting passages, particularly in Jeremiah, quoted four times in this book. They're quoting passages where the name Jehovah is used. So it's making it very, very clear that the Lord of the New Testament and the Jehovah of the Old Testament are one and the same. Because when Jeremiah 31 is quoted in the book of the Hebrews, and the word Lord is used four times in the passage, it's used of the Lord Jesus in the book of the Hebrews, but if you go back to Jeremiah, it's Jehovah, 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 Jehovah. So when these folks who come to your door and claim to be his witnesses, and they certainly are not his witnesses, because if they were his witnesses, they would testify that Jesus Christ is Lord, and he's God himself. You see, that's the worth of the person we're dealing with. And so we see these titles. There's more we could say, if we uh, not in this passage, but of course in Scripture as a whole, there are over a hundred titles. And I think perhaps the most conclusive of them all is those remarkable verses in Isaiah: "Immanuel, God with us." Very black and white, isn't it? Very clear cut. And we have to hold on to these things but now here's another thing that these verses are are, are taken up greatly with and they're taken up now not only with the uh, worth of the Lord Jesus but now he's going to speak about his works and it's lovely that this writer looks at the Lord Jesus in the past and he looks at him in the present and he looks at him in the future that's a very biblical way to consider the Lord Jesus he's the same yesterday, today and forever He's the one who is, and was, and is to come. He's the one who can say before Abraham was, I am. And so the writer starts to tell us a few things. Look at verse 2. Whom he hath appointed, heir of all things. Now you see he's in the past. By whom he made the world. Now he's still in the past. But now a little bit further down he's going to say, he's upholding all things by the word of his power he's in the present and then he's going to look to the future as far as the universe is concerned and he's going to say as a vesture he'll fold them up on a previous occasion here in Aberdeen we looked at 2 Peter 3 and we saw that idea of this old world coming to an end and new heavens and a new earth that are going to come in but who is it who's is responsible for all that? Here is the work of creation and our New Testament very clearly attributes the work of creation particularly to the Lord Jesus. Colossians 1 would tell you very clearly by him, for him, in him. He designed it. He brought it into being and he's its very purpose. And Hebrews 1 is repeating that. Hebrews 1 is saying to us he has appointed the earth of all things. It's for him. By whom he made the words is by him. And he is upholding all things. How? By the word of his power. Isn't that wonderful? How did he bring it into being? God spake. How did he raise Lazarus from the dead? Lazarus come forth. Just his words. How will he raise you and I from the dead if we've gone through the death? Or change us if we haven't? He shall descend from heaven with a shout. Shout with a voice of an archangel with the trump of God all he needs to do is speak and that's why in Peter it says by the same word it is kept until he says the word and the whole thing does precisely the opposite of what it did in the beginning the one who brought something out of nothing will take something back to nothing I do believe that's what Second Peter 3 teaches I don't think it's a reformation I think it's a total replacement you know, the interesting thing, isn't it, they talk about global warming. Well, I'm sad to say there's going to be global warming, okay. But on a scale beyond anything they could ever imagine, it will melt with fervent heat. Mm. They tell us it all started with a big bang. Well, the tragedy is it's all going to finish with a big bang. He's just going to speak, and with the word of his mouth, the whole thing going to fall apart. It's going to go. It's going to be gone. He is the one. He's the only one who can do this. But there's another work in view in this passage. It's a very important work. It's not the work of uh, of creation that's in view now. But it's the work of salvation. Look at what he says here in verse 3. When he had... Notice that little words added. It could just have said when he had purged our sins. But the Holy Spirit doesn't you know he doesn't add words just for the sake of it they're absolutely vital when he had by himself now these Hebrew Christians they would be and I would judge when this book was written they're getting very close to what they call today Yom Kippur they're getting very close to the day of atonement when he says as you see the day approaching I suspect it is that day in the seventh month and that was the big day, in a sense, in the calendar. I know the Passover and tabernacles, and, but really, the Day of Atonement was the big day. What happened on the Day of Atonement? That one day, and that one day only, the high priest went into the holiest, went through the veil. Just on that one occasion. Now, what happened that day was, they went to an altar... I won't go into all the detail. There are brethren here tonight who could do that. They could tell you how often they went in and out and uh, when there was incense and when there was blood. But here are just three simple things I want you to see. There is an altar on the outside. It was an altar of burnt offering. On that altar, a sacrifice was made. And that sacrifice is what they would call propitiation. But then as you come in the priest would go inside and that priest on that occasion was the propitiator he took the blood of the sacrifice and he then put that blood onto the uh, the, the, uh, first of all into the the holy place and then into the most holy and he put that blood on the mercy seat and the word mercy seat itself actually means propitiatory that was the place where it went so there were three different things There was propitiation, the thing that was done. There was the propitiator, the priest who did it. And then there was the propitiatory, the place where the blood had to be placed. And this book is going to tell you that the Lord Jesus fulfills all three. All three. He is the priest. He is also the offering. He himself made the propitiation. And he took it into heaven. On the basis he went into heaven was the giving of his life. The shedding of his blood. And he made propitiation. Now I trust we all realise what that means. In these days when we hear very loose things bandied about. About what people supposedly believe. And what people are accused of being. We need to be very careful of some of the slogans we, we cast at each other. We'll maybe talk about that a little bit tomorrow in Romans 14, uh, which I have at Dubious privilege of being handed as my passage tomorrow evening, but you know we need to be very, very careful. Propitiation is what was done Godward, and my view is very simple: that God, the Lord Jesus has made propitiation. He satisfied a holy God. He has done enough for this universe, and if there were countless others which there are not, He's done enough for that as well. But you and I come into the good of it when we get saved and the truth of substitution comes into play. But propitiation, you see on that day of atonement, the whole nation was covered. Believe me, the whole nation were not saved. The New Testament tells you that. They're not all Israel that claim to be in Israel. There were many of them. Most of them fell, by the way. But the nation was covered by the act. And in this book, he's going to tell them that here is one who is, he has by himself Nobody else involved whatsoever. Salvation is entirely of him. He's done the law. You see just as creation is a work of God. So is salvation. And the Lord Jesus has accomplished it all. Well the people of the day knew. Only God can forgive sins. They were absolutely right. Only God could forgive sins. And he made it absolutely clear. That's how he was able to do it because he is good you know I find it very sad nowadays we, we seem to you know we see people commit the most horrendous of crimes and dear souls and we don't criticise them but dear souls who have been wronged and they've lost loved ones and we hear them stand up and they say well now I forgive them now we don't want to be critical but they can't they don't have the grounds to you see sin ultimately is always against God look at what David said my David had wronged that many people He'd certainly wronged Bathsheba. Undoubtedly he'd wronged Uriah. I suspect he'd also wronged Ahithophel, if you want to look at that. But at the end of the day, David says, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Ultimately all sin is against God. And only God can forgive sin. So we can make great sweeping statements. Look, when your brother wrongs you, you can forgive him. But when a brother or sister goes contrary to divine guidance and commits sin that has to be judged, it is not for you to forgive that. It's for God to forgive it. It's very clear. New Testament is very clear about it. That's what the, the uh, Corinthians were doing. They were turning a blind eye to things as though they had the power to do so. They don't. God demands that these things be dealt with. But nevertheless... The Lord Jesus alone. So that is the next, The works that He performs, and look at the heavens. We saw it with the, the creation. We saw it in the past. We saw it in the present. We see it in the future. And He's the heir of all things. It's all ultimately for Him. But now let's come to these two expressions and say something about the wonder of the Lord Jesus. I can always remember uh, my, my father often on a Lord's Day morning uh, at home in, in Hayton would, would quote these verses in his worship. I can almost hear him now and if he then ever occasionally he would stand up and he would speak on them and he'd come to these uh, two expressions in, in verse 3. The brightness of his glory and he had a little tendency sometimes to use big words and one of his big words would come out here and it's the big word effulgence. I didn't have a clue what an effulgence was. But really, in a sense, there is no other real word that can actually replace it. really is the, the brightness of the effulgence. There is something just shining out that is an absolute demonstration. And then the next expression, I'm just going to link them in a moment. The next expression is this, and he's the express image of his person now I would suggest when you come to God there are two different things you need to consider one is absolutes and one is attributes and in the brightness of his glory you will see the absolutes here are the absolutes there are three of them they're very clear from the beginning of our bible they're expounded again to us in John's gospel and they're very clear cut and here they are God is what look at creation and you'll see them what do you get first of all let there be light day one and it's repeated in day four the moon the sun the moon he made the stars also just a kind of casual he's thrown in there you know there they are populating millions of them billions he made the stars also by the way notice there was light three days before there was ever a sun and moon and stars what happens on day two God is life. On day two, what's the big thing? Water. What are they doing? They're searching the universe to find a splash of water here or there and they can't find it. And, we're and they tell us the planet's getting bluer and bluer. <laughs> I read something in one of the papers this week. Apparently, the blue planet's getting even bluer, and I don't know whether it's to do with global warming again. I think is what they're, they're suggesting. But you know, uh, I always remember the, the words of that astronaut, not the one who first went to the moon, but the first one who went out into orbit and was able to look back. And as he, he as he woke up uh, to what was called an Earthrise rather than a sunrise, he woke up to an Earthrise. <coughs> And they asked him, what was the most, what, 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 tell us your, your, your most deep impression of what's out there. Oh, he says, that's easy. He says, there is one thing that just stands out above everything else. And he says, it's the little planet that we left behind. We looked back and he says, there's nothing like it. The wonder of it, the blue. And you see, God is life. And on that day two, you look at it, it's water everywhere. The waters above, the waters below, the land appeared out of the waters. And what happens on day five? He produces life out of that vegetation growth. Doesn't produce it uh, in, in hundreds of years that it takes for a tree to grow. Produces it just like that. Puts it into literal days, the evening and the morning. I don't think we should move away from these things in any way, shape or form. We don't need to compromise in any way. We stand clearly on a 6,000 year earth and on six literal days, and I have no problem standing on it, even though far greater Christian minds than mine are starting to compromise. There is no need to. We have a God who can create life from death. We have a God who can do all of these things. And so we see God is light, God is life. But what happens when we come to day three? And we come to day six. When we come to day three. And we come to day six. God now starts to put creatures. And in particular on day six. He puts one particular creature. You and I. Mankind. Why? God is love there was a creature that he could respond to there is a creature that could respond to him rather and so we see this beautiful these absolutes and when you go into John's gospel you'll see it does the Lord Jesus says I am the light of the world I am we're just looking at it now he speaks about life he says I've come to give them life they might have it more abundantly he says I am the bread of life the true bread that came. and then Lazarus is raised from the dead as the ultimate demonstration Then, of course, look at him as the God of love. You look in in John's Gospel, you'll see the the three miracles at Jerusalem. They demonstrate that that nation, that was the three things that they'd missed out on. That was the three things that were missing. There's the man at the pool. What was his problem? I have no man to help me. A nation that had lost its love. You come to the blind man. What was his problem? He couldn't see. God of light. Are we also blind? They were. The blind leading the blind. You come to chapter 11, the third miracle in the vicinities of Jerusalem at Bethany. What is it? It's one that's dead. Look at the three miracles that were performed there. One of them, there is no love. One of them, there is no light. One of them, there is no life. And yet the Lord Jesus in that very gospel tells us He's the answer to all three. Having loved His own, He loved the world. God so loved the world. Having loved His own, He loved them unto the uttermost and when you come to chapter 1 he speaks of that love between him and his disciples then of course you'll, you'll notice if they're the three absolutes and they're seen in the expression the brightness of his glory I want to suggest in the next expression we come to the attributes the express image of his person two different words really for image in our new testament we must just move quickly there is a word which is where we get our English word icon from. That is used of the Lord Jesus in Colossians. He's the image of the invisible God. It is also used of us. Paul uses it himself five times. He speaks about uh, being made in the image of God. He speaks about being converted in the image of God. He speaks ultimately as we have borne the image of the earthy. We will bear the image of the heavenly. But this here is a different word. This is the word from which we get our English word character. The Greek word "character." He says he is the express image of his person. In other words, everything that is found in God. That is why uh, writing to the Colossians who were being beset by people who said you need something else. You need a bit more. Whether it's a bit more rules and regulations from the Judaizers. Or whether it's a bit more knowledge from the Gnostics. Or whether it's a bit more self... uh, deprecation and putting down of the flesh as, uh, as the asceticists would have said in each case you need more you need more, you need more and the writer Paul says to the Colossians no you don't need anything more because in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead even when he was here in the body all fullness dwells in him he's got it all and so you look through John's gospel again and what does he say to Nathaniel when thou wast under the fig tree I saw thee he's the omnipresent God what does the woman at the well say? Come see a man who told me all things ever I did. He's the omniscient God. Is not this the Christ? Who can he, what can he say to a pilot? Thou couldst have no power at all except it were given thee. But all power, he says to Peter, is given unto me. He's the omnipotent God. Now we must finish. Let's just touch on the fourth one. So we've seen his worth. Divine titles. We've seen his works. Creation, salvation, unique words of God. We've seen his wonder. He's the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person. God is light. God is life, God is love. He's omnipotent, he's omnipresent, he's omniscient. But then I want you to see this little expression just as we close here in verse uh, 5. Verse 6 rather. Now this is looking to the future. So it's not looking back at uh, the Lord coming in incarnation. It's looking at him coming in glory. When he bringeth in again the first begotten into the world. Let all the angels of God worship him. You go home tonight and get out. You don't need to get out of concordance. Most of you probably don't have one now. You've got something on your phone. A blue letter Bible or whatever it is. You look up the first... Mentioned. now you will need to look at it in the, in the original language not in English um, mention of worship in your Bible it's not Genesis 22 uh, I and the light you go yonder and worship that's in English but you'll have to go back to Genesis 18 and here is Abraham and what is he confronted with he's confronted with what he thought initially were three men but we find out very clearly when we come to the next chapter that two of the three men were in fact angels And if you look at chapter 18, you'll find out clearly who the other man is. The other man who, uh, when he speaks, the Old Testament uses the word Jehovah. And when uh, Abraham speaks, he uses the word Adonai. And he recognizes that this is a divine person. This is what we would call a theophany, or perhaps more correctly, a Christophany. And it's the first mention of worship. It says Abraham fell down. That's the word for worship notice there's angels present but he fell down before the Christophany you come to the first mention in the New Testament it's in Mark chapter 2 in Matthew chapter 2 rather it's the the first mention as our Bible is written to us and it says this they came to where the young child lay with Mary his mother and they fell down and worshipped him just notice that not them now there's been angels involved there as well but the worship is to an infant a newborn infant. We've two in the family at the moment. I saw one of them just uh, yesterday and another one today. And, and, and to think that these great men who came from these, they fell down and they worshipped an infant. Why? Because he was Emmanuel. God with us. Now look at the last mentions of worship in your Bible. Old Testament is in Zechariah. Full of angels. Angels everywhere. And then comes the king. And the last mention of worship in the Old Testament is when they worshipped that one. That coming Messiah. Mm. Christ again. Then go to the end of the book of the Revelation. And here is John. And here are the angels. And what does he do? He falls down to worship and the angel says, No, get on your feet. You don't worship me. I'm a servant just like you. You can only worship God. When he bringeth in again his first begotten into the world, let all the angels of God worship him. Mr. Flanagan used to tell us there's at least 104 million of them. 10,000 times 10,000 with thousands of thousands. I think there's another 28 in that passage as well but you can look at that for yourself. And they worship Him. You see, worship belongs to God alone. Well, I know they'll stand at your door and they'll say when Thomas was confronted with the very evidence of his manhood and the very evidence of his humiliation and the very marks in his body He said, my Lord, and they'll say, and he looked to heaven and said, my God. But the Bible doesn't say that. He said to the Lord Jesus, my Lord and my God. Just as the Lord Jesus had made it clear to the disciples, that's exactly who he was. So as we close tonight, let us go home tonight and think of this one that we have intimacy with. This Jesus of the book of the Hebrews, going forth to him, who's entered on our behalf and we can go in because he's, and He represents us now and He's Jesus of Nazareth and He knows all about us because He's just like us apart from sin but never lose sight of His worth, the great titles and in particular in this age He's Lord the great name of the New Testament age, He's Lord never lose sight of those great works Oh, creation, that's wonderful but when it comes down to you and I in a sense even more wonderful, when he had by himself purged our sins. Look at the great wonder. He is this one who is the brightness of his glory, and he's the express image of his person. This is God and as such, the great first commandment, the preeminent commandment in so many ways, He alone is to be worshipped, and worship is to be given to the Lord Jesus as the ultimate proof. Of precisely who He is. He is God. And so we would say, just like a Thomas today, though we look in wonder at what He did for us, and we look in wonder at that one who was made like unto His brethren, I trust each of us would proclaim, My Lord and My God. We trust that God may bless His word, shall we pray. Father, we give thanks for the opportunity to meet with Thy people tonight, and we give Thee thanks. For being in Christ. We give thee thanks for being saved. We give thee thanks that we're found amongst the people of God. And around the word of God. And we acknowledge just where we might have been. And we acknowledge the goodness and graces and love of God towards us. And Father we give thanks for the blessing that we have of being here. And we just take time to remember brothers and sisters. Who would like to have been here and are not able to. And we think of many tonight who are laid aside. Both here and elsewhere. And many who are suffering. And many who are in difficult circumstances. (coughs) And we bring them before thee. Mm -hmm. And we think of many brothers and sisters. That we don't know. Mm -hmm. Who are also in difficult circumstances. And we give thanks. They are all known to thee. Mm -hmm. And they are all known to the saviour. And he represents them. And we pray for them. And we bear up thy weary heritage. To thee tonight. Across this planet. And thy people. Wherever they may be. In whatever circumstances. Now father we do pray for a blessing. In our little time of fellowship. We thank thee for the provision of the saints here in Holborn and holding this and we thank thee that it's a service that's done for all the saints that they can come and hear the word of God and we thank thee for that and we thank thee for the provisions that have now been made through thy people and we acknowledge that ultimately they come from thyself and preserve us from ever taking them for granted for there are many tonight who cannot do that and so we give thanks for that as well And we pray for thy blessing as we part and thy help over the weekend. And tomorrow our Father as many of us will come to remember the Lord Jesus. If he be not come and if he is come then we won't need to remember him. Because we'll be with him and we'll be like him. We just bow and acknowledge the wonder of all that thou hast done for us and give thee thanks. And pray for thy blessing as we part and blessing on our little time together. In the precious name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Once again thank you for coming. And thank you for listening.
0: I'm sure we'd all like to thank as well for his word to tonight. Just in closing, we'll stand and sing hymn number 319. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins are based to bear. What a privilege to carry. Everything is going there. Open peace we often forfeit. Over evil's pain we bear. All because we do not carry. Everything is going there. And we'll stand and sing him number 319.